Welcome to Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and partner at the Dendros Group. I'm Luz Maria Frias, and happily enjoying life to its fullest and whatever comes my way. <laughs> and I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians and associate at Dendros Group. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers and Counter Stories producer. So this Black History Month, we've been hitting many different aspects of our conversation, starting with the origins of Black history, moving into some key figures and some history. And, uh, and then, of course, moving into our cultural conversation with Rose McGee in a previous episode. Today, I'm really, really excited to move into yet another dimension of Black history. And so we have a special, special guest uh, and I'll have her introduce herself. Please welcome Gabrielle Greer, who's joining us today. Uh, introduce yourself and kind of the many hats that you wear, and it's part of what we're talking about today. <laughs> uh, hello, everybody. My name is Gabrielle Greer. Um, I'm the Chief Innovation Officer at the African American Leadership Forum in the Twin Cities. Uh, I really sit at the intersection of arts and culture, uh, sports and entertainment, uh, and really thinking about how to take care of our young people in the next generation. So, one of the beautiful parts about Black History Month and its original intents when it was Negro History Week with Carter G. Woodson is that there would be symposiums covering multiple aspects of what of African heritage and Black heritage and connection. And so, yes, history is important and, and, and education was important throughout the season, but also kind of having a conversation about envisioning innovative ways to, to move forward, connecting us with networks and resources and allowing us to imagine and envision what a future looks like. Uh, so if you think about the term Afrofuturism, that is something that they were talking about at Negro History Week. Um, and so I just, I'm so glad to have you here, uh, 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 Gabrielle, to help push us into this conversation uh, across many different intersections, including how we tie together resources and envisioning a future uh, uh, for Black people in particular. So um, I'm, I'm really curious. So, so Chief Innovations Officer, right? So, so this is an, an exciting area in that you, you get to kind of imagine the future in your work, right? I do. I think the most exciting thing about this work, you know, is understanding that all of us have interconnections and relationships to what is possible for the future. If you have any relationships with elders, they're holding down, you know, the sacredness around what was and the relationship with young people who are like, yeah, but this is what's hot now. And how do those two things marry? And so I think about the relationships and community, but I also think about the importance of um, the creative fields, the importance of what it means to, to use art um, as a through line to what is possible for the future. Uh, and those three things really flow into my, my work and into my world. Gabrielle, before we go further, I want our uh, listeners to really understand the work and the mission of the African American Leadership Forum, which is uh, affectionately known in community as ELF. Uh, and I, I know it from back in the day when it was first formed uh, because of my role in community and philanthropy. But I, I invite you to just really talk about the mission and the members and what constitutes ELF so that folks who are unfamiliar with it have a good sense as, as we go further with this conversation. Sure. 
All right, so the African-American Leadership Forum, Forum, formerly known as ALF, has been rebranded over the last year to be now known as the Forum. And um, we're really positioned in the city right now as a think and do tank. And that means that we use a combination of research across a variety of different intersections. So participatory, market, um, and just straight up old fashioned focus groups and conversations as a way to convene black Minnesotans about the future of, um, of the future of our state. Uh, and we do that with the intention to really think about how are we shifting the narratives? How are we actually being drivers and um, advocates for folks in community? And so this isn't about you know, us developing programs that are from our own initiative. We're actually using um, the input directly from community that drives what our pillar areas are, what our impact areas are, um, and how we think about um, using that as direction, uh, as directors towards things like philanthropy and policy. And we talked about the pillars. You want to unpack that a little bit? Yeah. So we have a, a number of impact areas that are identified um, that are uh, generational wealth building, economic prosperity, uh, Black education, public safety, uh, to name a few. And those were developed and guided by community. They were heard through a series of conversations over a number of years um, that are really saying, hey, these are the things we care about. These are the things we need resources behind. These are the things that we're really wanting to help um, direct and drive just the way that um, people are, are, are showing up for the community. One of the things I, one of the things I love about that, and, and, and I can see as as we think about kind of the innovative approaches to tying some of these things together, how that becomes a part of it. I'm remembering um, the the stories of that my grandparents and my aunts would tell around ways in which folks would tie together all of these different things. We knew which doctor to see, what places to go, who in, in community can connect on certain things. And so um, when you think about for example, just going out and getting a service or buying something, right? There are 15 people that you would talk to in community before going outside of community that kind of builds that 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 spiral together, and and so uh, that 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 excites me to look at some of the amazing and strategic ways that that has happened, um, you know, in the past, and to see how that's coming full forward. So 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 giving those those pillars in those areas and direction, like how how. What are some of the like cool like like nuggets that that you get to work on that are like pulling some of these things together? Yeah, the dopest thing for me is that uh, we use and I was um, really positioned at Alf to help develop the framework around Black Center design. Um, and generally, people know it as human centered design. If they're um, it's a, a practice that really engages in centers the individual's voice um, and centers the individual person's experience as guides and ways to help develop um, outcomes or known outcomes. The way that we have flipped it to benefit our community is to say, well, Black folks have a particular kind of culture and inside of that culture, it exists, we all do, um, but specifically in the Black community, what does that look like in relationship to the way that we communicate. And that can be through, through volume, through levels, through hand waves, through all these things that are gestural that help also tell a particular part of the story. And so using cultural components that help develop the, 
I would say the framework in which we show up in spaces with people help lead to us identifying what are the um, perspectives and creative evolutionary ways that we can solve systemic problems um, and centering our culture and our experiences at the center. I think all of that sounds amazing. Like everything you've just said was like amazing. But to me, it's like overwhelming, right? You're talking. <laughs> not, I mean, it's just <laughs> not to me because I get it. Uh, like, I mean, like, it's it's like, a, it's I'm an overwhelming. I I feel like it's an overwhelming amount of work to the point of where do you start? Where mm -hmm. do you start with with something like this? You know, the first place that we started is asking very. Um, I would say simple questions so that it's not overcomplicated. So for example, if we're having conversations with black folks about generational wealth building, we're saying things like, when you dream about having a home, like what and why do you want that space? And so the conversations that come out of that, you know, we don't know. We could, we could, we could predict and think about why someone would want a home. Um, and what we've learned is that, like one, one sister said, I want a house because I want to control the backyard and I know what's happening in that backyard. And mm -hmm. I know that at the park, I can't control what's happening in those grass areas. And so for me, it's very particular about having natural spaces in which my kids can navigate, where I am not only thinking about their physical safety, but I can set up things that are very particular to them. I would have not been able to create that particular story or that particular known knowledge set without having prompted a question that was about dreaming. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people that are in philanthropy, and we know this from just being in community and the thousands of nonprofits that are in the city, it's always deficit-based. It's always about what you don't have, what you can't have access to, where right. you're not at, right. how can we fill this gap or need um, but can the conversations be dream-based? And that is where Afrofuturism comes into play. I love play. it, love it. I love that. I mean, I, I've talked plenty of times among our, our segments over the course of years how too often uh, I think mainstream society views our communities, brown, black, and indigenous, uh, as from a deficit base. You know, And we have so many assets to contribute and we have so much uh, visionary uh, components to who we are organically. Um, and we have to be. I mean, if you think about in order to withstand all the challenges that we have, and you know, many folks call it resilience, uh, resiliency and, and survival. I mean, folks can do a whole lot with very little. Uh, and that means, you know, you've got to be able to be resourceful in many ways, but also see what you do have still as a strength, you know, and as an asset and um, not not come from it from a defeatist standpoint. You know, I, I grew up inner city Chicago in the barrio where the measures of success were as a girl, not getting pregnant while you're a teenager, not joining the gang and not dropping out of high school. Uh, we never had health insurance. We had ice on the inside of our windows, you know, ice buildup. But when people would ask was, you know, were we poor? I would always say no. I mean, cause we had so much, we had family, we had 
the ability to be close knit, not only with our immediate family in the Latino community, it's it's beyond the nuclear family. Uh, and we did as much as we could with what we had. Uh, and it wasn't until, you know, you're older in age and you start looking at and reading about ACEs and, you know, where you fall on the on the questionnaire and all that stuff. I mean, I think about these things as you're speaking, uh, because it really is one that we think of self-identity and self-empowerment from a place that really allows us to go further. You know, I, I remember um, getting to participate into, in one of the focus group sessions. I think I was sitting in the, in the um, education or youth kind of youth development kind of group going through the um, uh, uh, design process, right? This black center design process. And one of the things that, um, that stood out right away. Number one, we got to talking right away because even the room, the attention to the detail and how the room is set up and how the conversations are set up, you know, felt like home. And we, we accelerated that kind of process of getting to know folks. We didn't even know because we were able to be basically speak our own language, right? That, that's a, it, in, even though it's English, right? It's our language. It's a, it, it's not, not, not the standard. It's not Kings. We got together, and one of the things that um, I really loved about that process is that we began in that value space uh, with with this um, with this idea that every single person around that table not just has something to contribute, but is a has a unique um, expertise, if you will, on not just black experience, and we're asked to be experts in our in, in who we are, and and I don't know that that was the explicit question, but that's what it felt like. So, so now, no matter who was at the table, no matter what your background was, no matter what expertise you brought to the table, everything was valued in a way that felt like it did, like like it felt like community is supposed to feel in that regard. And so, then what people would share out was amazing, um, and it and it seemed like it happened so much faster than it does outside of of in, in outside space where other values are imposed to say, these are the things that we should value. We even got into a conversation on the housing side about what that means. And we had to pause and go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what does that need look like for you? And it was funny that we surfaced around our circle that, you know, that nuclear two people, you know, uh, two, two parents, two children and a dog, that 2.5 picket fence idea just obliterated because almost everybody around the table had multiple family members that are that are on your mind when we think about what the needs are of a house. And that's very different than what than the values you're steered to in some of the other conversations. And that was just one example. And I feel like the the Black Zinner design process allowed for us to to bring those aspects in the table and not insert a value system that's outside of our own. Uh, in order to get things done. And I, I just, it, 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 it felt like you were hugged in the process of adding your expertise. It was, it was dope. I think you hit a, the nail on the head there, which is not insert a value system that is outside of our own, but that we can show up in proximity to one another and God forbid, like your nervous system be regulated and you not be on edge about you know, judgment or critique or having to think about the way that you're going to speak or what questions people are going to ask. Are you going to get it? Are you going to understand it? And to be fully seen, and it is its own form of liberation. And I think that is what's incredibly important for us right now across all of our communities is to consider what are the ways and the spaces in which we're constantly giving people back 
their own liberation and giving them the freedom to decide in calm spaces that are where they are welcomed like man you can you can share here and it's cool like we're not going to take anything from you nothing nothing is being pulled or extracted because i am you and you are me and this is for us so i think there's something powerful about about that particular um thing that you mentioned um anthony gabrielle if i was to pick up on that there i have mentioned i think a couple of times on counter stories that the only the only position that i really that i've had where i felt that kind of freedom where i wasn't judged where i was among my people is when i was commissioner of health and human services for the moax band because i was working in my own community and I didn't have any of those other values until I reached out as a representative of Malax to interact with the state or the county or the feds. Then it was back into that world. But when I was working on the res, the very thing that you and Anthony have brought up, have explained, is the only time in my life where I've felt that freedom, where I felt where I wasn't being judged. Now, now, you know, within family, you know how you still have those <laughs> dynamics. Is, so don't get me wrong. I mean, not all this stuff fades away, right? You know, because fa family's family. And you know how that, how that is in our Black side and our Native side. For me, family's family, you know, so those things are still there. But that freedom, that, that, uh, the, the experience of not being judged of who you are, but being being judged just by the character of who you are, which is totally different than what we experience in our day-to-day -day life here. And so that is a very free and empowering thing. And, and I, as you were talking about these focus groups, it, it reminded me that one, one thing I was able to do uh, as I was getting my graduate degree from the University of Minnesota was to work with an individual, an elder in our community, in the American Indian community, where we did similar type things. And we would, uh, we would uh, do focus groups with Native folks and, and uh, issue these reports. It was with a place called the American Indian Research and Policy Institute. So there's a lot of parallels between what I'm hearing with the uh, African American Leadership Forum, Policy Forum or Forum, uh, now the form, and with what we were doing with the American Indian Policy Center back in the in the um, late '90s, so there's there's a kin there because those focus groups in your community become powerful vehicles because you're not coming in there with any idea of what's going to come out. You know what comes out is what comes out, and then you take that and begin to build on that. And so that was also a very empowering um, experience to go through. And, and I can only imagine, you know, hopefully one of these days I'll get an invite from one of those focus groups too. So, <laughs> but it's powerful work, you know, that that's powerful work. I'm wondering if, because as you were talking about homes, I couldn't help but flash back to how things were when I was growing up and, and, uh, you know, so there were economic reasons, there were different type of things. But when I think of my own experience, I 
you know, I grew up in the projects in North Minneapolis. And then in the 60s, as a result of, of, uh, of activism from the black community, you know, around housing and all these other kind of things that, that uh, were negatively impacting our community, you know, we were kind of, it was in the uh, 60s that my father was able uh, to successfully buy his first home. Our first home was in the 60s. Um, but I realized that economically there were differences, right? And I think those differences exist in our communities. You know, there's differences between all of us, Black, Native, whatever, but there are differences in our communities. And and sitting in on those focus groups, bring those type of things out, I think, that help us then build better community within our communities. And um, um, so I was wondering if you could talk about that a little. Yeah, that is what I feel. You know how when you're, you, as you begin to mature and really have deep reflections on who you are and like, why did that happen? Like, why was I that particular kind of kid? Like this little weirdo kid. Yeah. Like, what was that about? Um, and my, I had a really amazing grandfather um, who built me this little wood stool. This is all relative. Um, and as a kid, it was like my talking stool. And when I, whenever I felt like tension that was going on in the family, I could stand on the stool and it was like my way of being like, hold up, I'm uncomfortable. Y'all have been doing this for too long. Um, and that practice of learning how to use my voice and my elder giving me permission to have space to do that as such a young person holding these tensions continues to show up everywhere in my life and in my practice as this like, okay, we're you feel this way and you feel that way and nobody's wrong. So I think that's a big part of the forum right now and the commitment to my work, which is being able to hold the reality and the tensions that exist in our community. And that there's so many different policies and philanthropic organizations that one that unintentionally or intentionally divide us that say, if you want a home, and you may not be ready to own a home, then these resources are only for you. And so we only wanna to talk to the people that are interested in home ownership. We don't wanna to talk mm. to the purpose. And so what happens when that sort of division is created, whether they're conscious of it or not, it's because at the center of it, it's not about holding everyone who's interested in that. And that shows are interested, it's not holding all of the different perspectives that are connected to what it means to have a space and shelter where you feel safe and you like have a place to like convene with your family. That also shows up everywhere. So for example, we, this past fall, um, I held my first event in, at the forum um, since transitioning there. It was called Dark Matter and it is a creative exploration into, into black education. And so we have these two leaders uh, who do all kinds of crazy things in the nation. One, um, his name is Kareem Weaver. He is a, a wonderful, uh, just incredible philosopher, researcher um, around um, literacy. And he did an intense study around prison to pipeline um, for black boys and learned that there was this high percentage of them who were dyslexic. And he's like, well, what's going on here? We have all these kids who ended up in prison 
who are black boys who were dyslexic. How did we miss that? Is there a trend there? And how do we how do we dissolve that, remove it, eradicate it out of the ways in which black boys are experiencing everything from in education? And on the other hand, we had Dr. Um, Bettina Love, who cares a lot about hip hop culture and keeping culture at the center of the classroom as an invitation for young people to feel seen and feel vibrant and feel like they're in it and they're in a present sense of education and not learning something that was. Um, and so holding these two people who were saying all kinds of things at the event, um, everything from like charter schools are whack to like, this doesn't like, so what you bought the kids a Dr. Martin Luther King book, they can't read it. It doesn't matter if they have the book, if they can't read it. And so we're having these hard conversations, public conversations about people from our community speaking very directly um, from their values, from their experiences and from their work and not putting any judgment on it. Uh, and like my therapist says, let's just be curious. Let's be curious <laughs> about why this is happening, Gabrielle. Let's not judge it. And so mm -hmm. how can that continue, can, can continuously be not just this one-time situational experience, but become can become a practice through Black Center Design around us being able to hold the realities of what's going on in our community. We're not out here judging and shaming people for their thoughts and their different experiences, but we can create containers in which hold the tensions. One, one of the things that, that I love about that exchange is that some folks will often in those spaces will, will get pulled into a conversation solely about the past. And, and, you know, the true essence of Sankofa says we're going to engage in past, present, and future simultaneously. That's its core to much of the African ethos. You can talk to Elder Mahmoud more about that if you want to know more, Elder Mahmoud El-Kati. But one of the things that I love about uh, being able to do that and practice that is that it grows a muscle that is actually atrophying in much of what I see in the United States. And this is an example of one of the cultural elements of African identity, African heritage peoples, uh, that is a huge asset to the world, especially at this time. Out of that work, you have the hilariously interesting, at times overwhelming, to borrow from 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 Lee's world, just imaginatively why. But you're you're in the space. If we think about Afrofuturism, that's looking at at um, technology that's imagining that Black folks are in the future unlike much of our sci-fi genres, you know, previously, I think the Brits got out a little ahead of us. There's a lot more representation of folks of color in British science fiction than there is in the United States, but that's a whole different episode. So, so in that Afrofuture space, we have to imagine what the future looks like. So what are some of the imaginative things that are coming out of this work for, yes. in, in your experience? Yes, so I think one of the one of the most fascinating experiences so far, uh, we had a conversation with two hundred plus Northsiders um, at uh, Sanctuary Church where we were having um, conversations around generational wealth, and I think so many people thought that the outcomes of those conversations were going to be solely about house homes and solely about entrepreneurship, and of course those were components because we know that you know, those are big pillars in which people are able to generate wealth for their families um, and for the next generations. 
But what we could not have predicted, which is like the sweet, juicy part of Black Center design, um, is that people were able to uh, start imagining what a different kind of collaboration looked like. So conversations were um, like, okay, what if there was a farm and a cooperative and a daycare, like all on the same parcel? What does that look like? How do children benefit from understanding that the food goes from the urban farm into the cooperative? We hire people and young people that are learning that. And then, you know, we're all living on this space together. What if that happened in the city? What if that was not, what if that happened right in North Minneapolis on Broadway? There were conversations around what is financial literacy look like in partnership with young people? Like what if there, you know, was a bank and a school? What, 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 what does that mean? What, what, what could that create for young people? Uh, there were conversations around, okay, what if, you know, there was policy that allowed emerging entrepreneurs um, to where they didn't have to pay a lease for three years? What does it look like if they had access to resources and to be fully resourced financially? Because um, if you say you believe in whatever we can create, then could you make space for that? So I think there was a combination of this, um, I would say hard questions or um, imaginative questions that push back against current policy and structures. And then there was this other part that was like, man, can we get back to what it feels like to be together? And can we put things together that if we were at, if we didn't have all of this stuff and all these structures, we all this stuff would be together anyway. So it's that combination to your point, Anthony, of it is Sankofa because it's it is saying when we didn't have a lot of space, and there weren't daycares. Somebody was taking care of someone in the, in the in the house. There was a community garden that was right there. There was someone that was storytelling. Somebody had to run the the you know facilities. There was all of this in one space. And can we get back to that? But can we do it in the context of what's happening right now? Uh, and none of that could have happened with you know just you know quote leaders in nonprofit or in philanthropy. It it required many sessions over an entire summer and a ton of listening. And the, and like what I keep telling people that I love so much about Black Center De Design and shout out to Dr. Catherine Squires, uh, also Rondo native, um, <laughs> says all the time, you know, Black Center Design requires us to slow down. And the act of shifting the pace is actually a push against white supremacy and, you know, this sense of urgency that's not needed um, because you cannot be adaptive to community um, if you're not listening to them. And if you're not listening to them, then you're not doing Black Center design. So I'd be interested to hear, because um, as we're talking about this and we're saying, you know, things looking into our history, but thinking forward with what's happening now. So I'd be interested to hear, you know, how the youth participated um, in these processes, because like for us, you know, the Super Bowl, we were trying to explain what some of the commercials were to our kids, right? <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and, and the way that they view things are just so different than how we view things. And then our elders are, you know, like, I feel like they're so old school and it's hard to agree on 
you know, the future of what our community looks like when I'm like, I don't want to be stuck in the kitchen all day, you know? And so there's just, you know, maybe because we're a newer immigrant um, group that that's more of a, a struggle, but uh, sometimes youth are just like, I don't want to be in a room with a bunch of old people, you know? So like, how, how did you guys incorporate that into, into the process? We have, they have their own separate focus groups for that reason, that we wanted to ensure that they had space to be able to say the things that were true for them and didn't feel like they had to adapt to whatever the elder in the corner who was giving them the, the eye, like- Who knows their mom, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, I, so I think there's a space for, you know, people to have that own, their own um, conversation, generative conversation, imaginative conversations around what's possible. And then there was also an, a space where it needs to be intergenerational. The elders actually do right. need to hear what are the young people saying and mm -hmm. vice versa. And to, to allow like young, you know, the younger adult, the 20 to 25 year olds to say, um, I don't want a house right now. Like I'm actually cool with just like renting for a bit and, um, and saving money this way. Like, I don't want the pressures of that. What if I want to move to California? Like, then I'm stuck with this thing. So I think hearing what life could look like or the different ways that life can manifest itself um, was really important, I think, in the dialogue between generations. A couple of questions that come to mind. You referenced now, Gabrielle, a couple of times systems and policies. So I, I want to understand what efforts the forum is is pursuing with regard to legislative changes and you know, we're what week two into the legislative session of the second biennium. So that's my first question. And then my second question is all along the lines of um, whether the forum also offers the ability as a service to engage and provide Black Center design to other organizations. I imagine some folks are listening and saying, you know, impressed by it, and they may not have the skill set do you or someone else within uh, the forum provide those services then for a fee? Really good questions. I would say the first question around policy and legislation. Uh, so we have a department inside of the forum called Data Research and Policy. Uh, they are the ones that really facilitate a significant amount of the market research. Um, and just recently they research they did market market research for 400 black minnesotans across the state um that was really around education and generational wealth and economic prosperity and what came out of that were a variety of different inputs that then get synthesized. The synthesizing happens from a combination of the design and innovation team and the DRP team. Once the data is synthesized, it gets drafted into what will become uh, the Black Agenda for Change. And those are a combination of policy recommendations and community solutions that come through uh, the community input and our and the and the conversations that have happened, those then get driven to the state capitol through a variety of different e efforts. We just recently had a black uh, policymakers roundtable, um, and uh, Amber Jones, who is the yes. a colleague of mine at Luther Seminary, just saying, whoop whoop. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, Amber Jones is phenomenal about pushing that agenda forward and getting it in front of as many people as possible to really drive that legislation. So I think the one exciting thing about the new change in, in the forum is that Yes, we are engaging community and we're having conversations and we're doing really great events where we have um, the opportunity to engage deeply and intimately with community, but it doesn't stop there. We then couple that participatory research with market-based research and then say, okay, let's smash these two together and like, what's that juicy hamburger that is going to drive forward into policy? And that I think is the, the best definition of the forum is from the individual and collective community into uh, policy recommendations and solutions that actually are driven to and um, policymakers and in front of legislators. That's awesome. That's awesome. And that's that's what we need. And that's what we've needed forever. I mean, I, I think back to the Urban Coalition. I sat on the board, I'm going to date myself, a couple of decades ago, led by Yusuf and Jenny. Uh, and there was part of that being done, but the uh, the muscle in the advocacy at the Capitol wasn't necessarily there the way it is now. Uh, so on the second part of that question, do you want to then go into that one? Yeah. So um, right now, we my job is to, along with the, some amazing researchers on my team, um, are uh, developing the Black Center Design Framework. And it is about not only having um, not these super long, complicated things that people don't want to read or don't have time to navigate through in a website, but to first say, if you are from the community and of the community, I can guarantee you 99% of the time you already do this, have been doing it, but don't, but it didn't have that ring or that, or the name Black Center Design. And so how do we ensure that people feel like, oh, I could do this? Like, we're talking about intentional conversation. We're talking about making room for people. We're talking about developing thoughtful questions. These are things that we do. So I would say a part of it is about exposure, um, documenting it, and then sharing it back so that people can see themselves reflected and that it's familiar. The second part is then to develop actual uh, documents and materials and guides that will live on our website that people will have access through through our Insight Center. So people will be able to show up and, and read about Black Center design, um, have access to materials that help support them, and then, of course, show up to events and spaces to experience it. And I would say, too, is unlearning uh, the pressures of the dominant way as well, right? Unlearning what, what came in and, and just kind of... Uh, overtook our, our thinking and getting back to, like you said, to our roots um, and how we're doing. Go ahead, Anthony. Well, I was just saying, like, that, that get re reminds me of the conversation before we began recording. We were doing the, you know, how are we all connected kind of thing. And, and of course, Gabrielle and Luz <laughs> began to, and, and Don began to put all these little dots together and I'd say that that's one of the gets out of, out of you know, when you said we've already been doing this and now we're, we're, we're kind of putting name to it. It's the get that comes out of it, because as you go through all that process and you document it, and you put it up there for folks to see and engage with what tends to happen is you now are connected to folks in ways that we can go back to the forum. We can go back to this conversation we had. We go back to these to these areas. And now 
this network that hurts us in many other ways. The, the lack of network. When we get into certain these functions, especially in predominant in dominant culture space and white space, we have to we we don't have the networks that other folks do. This is an internal network thing that allows me to go. Oh, I heard this thing here, and and let me give it more tangible with this. Um, you know, for our youth, um, our our uh, youth develop youth department at the church. One of the things that we do is say, all right, if you need to go and get research for a project or something like that, right, where do you go? If I had to do a a social studies uh, project on a particular community, where do I go? Like, what are the issues that come up in that? And and now through through folks having been a part of this, folks go, well, let me call so-and-so here. I had a kid come up and was like, I'm trying to do, I'm trying to think about um, I'm trying to think what are they, they were, they were studying. They were looking at, um, they were looking at the, the demographics of, of people of color in the Duluth area and they can go and they can Google a whole bunch of different things. But Dr. Elizabeth Pye, who was part of a group, one of our, one of our folks was like, I was at an event in the twin cities. So they had come down to the twin cities. They were at an event. It was, it was, it was a form, the forum event. And, and they got connected with Dr. Elizabeth Pye, who is a, um, a demographer from the Twin Cities area, right? And now this kid, you know, within a day, this kid's in a conversation with Dr. Pye. Like, I get to call this person because that network is there. And so all along the way, we began to learn in these little tidbits. I learned uh, some things about our own family and some land that we've got uh, back when there was racially restrictive covenants that we were able to hold on to. We were getting ready to make huge decisions about that land use that were counterproductive to where we're headed. It would have worked 10 years ago, but for where we're headed, it's it's not going to work. And we were able to actually have some conversations with some folks to say, hey, have you thought about doing it this way? And now we're looking at more of family trust, right? We had no idea of first right to sell. Of, of sell. And that came out of these networks that were built in pursuit of all of this engagement. And so there are these gets for, for community building and networking that are huge and, and they may not necessarily be tangible, but they're there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I will say we're, what you're talking about is what I'm, I've been saying this word for this combo word, the relational web. That's what we're talking about. Like what happens when we're all at the end of the day, we do it long enough where we're all connected. And a really good friend of mine, um, PJ Hill always says they can't say no to all of us. So if you're telling me, you know, Anthony, you have this initiative and there's this thing you're trying to do and you don't know much about it, but you know, you got 10 to 15 people that you can call on and they all come with you to the meeting and each one of them has their own, you know, several layers of webs, it would be an, an economic disadvantage for them to say no to all of us. And so to that point, I think that's where I'm headed is if we can get enough people, adults, where they know they have five to 10 people that they can call on for anything that they feel is moving them forward into the future for their future generations or their current life. That's the plan. That's the goal. Heck, heck that's yeah. how we win. <laughs> Mob deep. It reminds me of that, that scene in Malcolm X when he's standing outside the jail cell to get their brother out. And doesn't say nothing. It just points the direction. And everybody turns, and they walk away, and and everybody's fixated on on you know everybody else is like, whoa, what just happened? And you got one person who's looking at and going, hey, that that demonstration right there. I mean, that's huge. That's huge. 
you know, you talk about because we're thinking about innovation, of course, we're thinking about future. Right. And, and we have this one of the deficits that we encounter um, that Black History Month, you know, as asking us to be different about is that we only imagine the things that we survived and we don't imagine the things that we can create in the future. One of the definitions that um, Af Afua Richardson, one of the uh, a comic artists and, and Afrofuturists themselves, talks about is that one of the archetypes of, of futurism is a, it's post-apocalyptic. Well, for many African-Americans in the United States, we're already post a, a type of apocalypse. For indigenous peoples, we've already experienced, we're already in a post, we're in the future, right? And so anything that describes the experience along the way is Afrofuturism in a sense. And so as we think about that innovation, and we think about what we've already survived and how we use that assets going forward. What are some of the assets that are coming forward that you're you're being able to be like, boom, we're going to claim that and name that asset as we go forward? Are there things like that that have been bubbling up in these processes? There are. And I think you I can't name them without doing the nods to the past. And so one of the biggest conversations. Um, there's a podcast called Earn Your Leisure, and they talk a lot about the importance of Black people being predominant in the space of finance and into stocks, and particularly around um, not just owning things because you want to own things, but understanding that every space that you acquire has a function, a purpose, and a reason. And so if we get back to holding the historical definitions of why we gather, why we have things, why we hold things, and couple that with the combination of like what's going on right now that requires us to, to have those things. And then there's the bridge between past and present. So one of the things has been around um, this conversation about the history of the Harlem Renaissance, you know, and Greg, um, Greg Cunningham at U.S. Bank talks a lot about this, you know, um, for the state of Minnesota, for other parts of the world around like, what does that mean? You know, and if you think about during the Harlem Renaissance, it was a whole bunch of people like white, white, white folks fled. Black mm -hmm. people like, OK, we have some space. What are we going to collectively do to acquire this? And it was architects and artists and all these creative folks who were at the center of the decision making around the spaces. And so what does that look like in the present sense? What does it look like to have a space that allows us to gather and um, convene and feels like right now? So there there have been things around uh, the combination of technology and music. Like, what does it look like for those two things to exist together? What kind of lab spaces require people to tinker again and like be in proximity to what it means to play and tinker? What would that look like for a 45-year-old? Hmm. How do you tink? What would you tinker with? I know, Anthony, you see those wheels I'm getting going. close to there. So, <laughs> <laughs> you're fresh 40. Um, yes, 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 absolutely. <laughs> Uh, but I think those things, what does tinkering look like? What does play look like in the concept and mind of technology? And how are we activating spaces that are allow us to move beyond just social media and video games, but think about what that looks like for people to think in a new way? Um, and maybe it's a combination of throwing a ball against the wall and also using screens and you know holograms and all these different forms of technology as a way for people to process about what what is possible later 
Well, I'm doing it in a way that allows the creativity without the restriction of having to have a degree with it, because that ends up being, you know, a big barrier for a lot of our folks in community because of the financial strains or time constraints or a combination thereof. But to be able then to create that and, and let folks, you know, go with it and be entrepreneurs, I mean, sky's the limit. I that that part we at one side we're going to venerate the people who figured out how to get KMOJ for example here in St. Paul back in the day when you couldn't get it easily and you had to wire all these things around to figure out how you get that radio station we knew how to do that I, man you know how many cars that have pieced together and you know I, I know we've got safety protocols in the state of Minnesota and all those regulations mm-hmm. and things like that but poverty will breed genius and engineering mm-hmm. prowess and mm-hmm. and I I knew how to do electrical resistance and and wire. I could have gone into that into that realm because we had to figure out what the lights. But the beautiful part of it is I also remember in our apartment complex space that no one had to worry about an ingredient because our cupboard was shared. So if we didn't have something, I went across the hall. I went down the hall. I asked folks around, and we could piece together something. And we know and expected that when they came to knocking on the door, we did the same. I can I'm, I can tell you on many in many different occasions the ways that we got together and did those meals and we didn't even know that we were doing the kind of co-op food sharing that now we pay a high price for at 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 local co-ops big mm-hmm. air quotes right so so we were doing the co-op living before it even got there and that's not unique i mean many and different the, you know the communities being raised by the village right the village that raised right that that kind of mentality of like i remember growing up and um we had an air, a window air, condition, air conditioning unit, and we lived in a HUD house, and we were moved from HUD house to HUD house as, as kids, and we got into a new house that had central air, but we had a unit that we had bought, and what we used to do is put it in the biggest room in the house, and my grandma and grandpa would come over, and we'd put mattresses on the floor and close the door, and we'd all sleep in that room. Mm-hmm. Well, now we were moved to this house that had central air, so we had this unit. And I remember, like, be, people saying, like, oh, you could sell that, you know, you could sell that and, and get, like, a hundred bucks. And I remember at the time I was young and I was going, wow, dad, a hundred dollars is so much money. Like, let's do it. And my dad just gave it away to some cousin. Yep. And it was like, at the time I was like, what, dad, we could have, like, made money. But, like, looking back and just realizing, like, how many times people gave us something just because we needed it. And how many times we just gave things away, no matter how valuable they were. And it's that village mentality still that a lot of our communities of color maintain. And and have to protect. I think that's an important mm-hmm. piece of this as well, in that my other experience of Black Center Design was I felt protected. In that the ideas, the innovations and things that came out, not only were non-judgmental to me, but... Um, there were folks who were then now watching out for that interest, um, not watching out for that idea, watching out for something coming along the line. I can tell you several times I've gotten calls or had somebody say, hey, I want to let you know that this thing is happening over here or I saw this thing. And because we had this connection, you put me um, abreast of it. I had not um, when we were this is before COVID, um, you know, the nonprofit sector, when I was uh, working and leading in nonprofit areas, we were 
um, I was unfamiliar with that kind of natural cycle of money that comes in, gluts in the system, and how it works in sync with the economic space. That was not part of the conversation. Well, I had folks. It was actually uh, Mama Titi Bidiaco who pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, I see you're doing some amazing things. It looks like you're launching some initiatives. You know where we're headed. Right. And we neither one of us knew where COVID was, but she was able to pull me aside because of some connection and be like, hey, I don't know if you thought about this, but you might want to. And we were able to hurry up and adjust and put some things in place to help us weather, weather a storm. We could have launched something huge right before the funding bowed out. So we would have had a year of really, really good success. And then we would have we would have been struggling to find ways to finance it. And so that that knowledge that circulates in there um, helps also helps protect and preserve some of the things as well. You know, I, I know we're, we're coming up in, in short of time and we want to make sure that we get you get you on to your next innovative thing that you're doing. So, you know, innovation, you know, when we think about uh, the definition of Afrofuturism, right? It's an intersection of imagination, technology, the future and liberation, right? So there's a, a space in there saying, ooh, this is something I really hope we can get into, right? As we imagine that. And so what are some of the things that that are in front of you right now that you're like, ooh, if we could just, if we could do blank, like that would be dope. If we could do this thing, that could move something. What is something like that that's percolating for you? And I'm going to ask all of our counter stories folks to start thinking about that, you know, since we're going to do some black centered design. <laughs> you know, I wish that what I was going to say was going to, was super like sexy and attractive, um, <laughs> but it's going to sound real regular and ordinary, but it is for the state of Minnesota and the way that our communities show up, it is the innovative thing. And that is collectivism. Mm. And what I'm what I'm noticing is that we have a lot of people in all these super small subgroups or these cross-pollinating conversations that happen in silos. Mm -hmm. And someone's like, oh man, I had this really great blank and I know such and such and oh you should connect to them. And there's these constant, these these high peaks of generative imagination that happened for years and years and years. And I don't know yet what the right combination of people are, but I know that collective energy is at the center of it. And I feel like if we can just, if we, it's like, you know, Roger Cummings at Juxta used to always say this, like, it is like, what is the Avenger crew? You know, like, what is mm. the group of people? <laughs> That's like when we bring our forces together, oh my gosh, we save the world um, and save the world in, in relative. I'm not trying to be out here. Acting <laughs> like. um, but the worlds in which are important to us or the spaces in which are important to us. So I would say figuring that out. Um, the thing that I'm super, super excited about is um, the intersections across, uh, you know, different groups. I would really like to like what what happens when you know the artsy fartsies are also in conversation with the educators and are also in conversation with people that do like you know finance but like boring finance like mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I felt judgmental that's a value there um, but uh, you know that like write deeds I just wonder what these what these intersections across spaces and different, you know, um, really highly developed skills 
will generate for future innovative conversations. I, I am really interested in the, the cross-pollinating in a way that isn't typical or atypical. Mm. For me, I'll just jump in here. One of the things, if I had to insert that blank, I liked, I liked that, that the collectivism, you know, focus space a lot. You know, for me, um, if we could only solve for X, and the X for me is um, the need, the, the connection to money and food. If what if we eliminated right, and it's and it's partly through a collectivist space, but what if we eliminated food as a market, and instead created food as a right? Um, that is something that that hits me right in the center, right? Like like just just removing or detaching some things from that, right? And and it's not easy. It's not to bring it forward to be easy, but it comes directly from the fact that in my family as long as there was enough of us who had a little something everybody ate good everybody ate good my, my or it was my grandma i think it was my aunt that said um you know the brilliance of black folks cuz we go through all this mess and have lived through all this lack of money and somehow and she would point to somebody in the family and said so and so still got fat and that wasn't a judgment. It was a thing the saying, like, it was kind of like Juba, the, the Georgia Sea Island song. I brought it up in our last song, right? You eat the skin, uh, you give me the scraps. That's how my mama's trouble all began. Because Juba this and Juba that and Juba killed the yellow cat. Get over double trouble Juba. Like, they 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 can't survive on the stuff that we could survive on. So imagine if we eliminated that. So that that's one of the things in the in, for me that I'm like, if food wasn't a consideration that you had to figure out to put on the table, what does that free up? So that's that's in my imagination bucket. For me, it's high quality education, yes. K through college. You know, it used to be, what, 100 years ago that high school for everybody uh, was provided in terms of public education. And that was a real game changer, because if you think about it, we were an agrarian economy and not everybody had a high school education. Well, Times have changed and the demands, you know, in terms of being able to compete with others and to, to build that generational wealth beyond real estate and the transfer of, of, uh, real estate property is education. And education is a, you know, the best equalizer. Um, but it's not free and it's not available to a whole lot of folks. And it, it becomes unattainable for folks who are, financially um, unable to afford it or have other barriers. So, and then the quality education, high quality education for uh, black, brown, and indigenous kids we know in Minnesota is subpar. It just, it's not, it's not a, an opportunity. And I always talk about leveling the, the playing field. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of leaders working on this and have been for the last couple of decades, but it hasn't happened. So for me, Having high quality education K through the end of college would be the dream. Can I insert pre-K? Yeah, there you go. Pre-K, absolutely. I would say um, that's most something so tangible. Um, just the acceptance um, and the the time and space, especially in the U.S., for rest, for ever, you know, just just for rest, for the people doing the work 
like Gabrielle, to the people who are working multiple jobs to, to keep the food on the table, right? Just to, that we, we allow ourselves to rest and the society doesn't judge us for resting. I think for me right now, in my mentality of tonight <laughs> when we're recording this, that's what's on my mind. For me, in terms of collectivism, you know, for me, I, when I think back, um, you know, in the American Indian community, a lot of the things that we're talking about existed and still kind of exist in terms of of uh, food, you know. So since we're hunters and gatherers and that still happens and it's a traditional way of life, if someone got a deer, then it fed not just your immediate family, but extended family, cousins, aunts, uncles, and everyone else. Um, we had healers, right? In our our black collective, we had healers. And so for me, it would be the area of healthcare that, you know, that was something that was provided to the community. Um, and so for me, it would be healthcare. To me, it is something that should be there for all. And, and, uh, so for me that, I guess that would be the area. Um, hmm if I'm still on the right page with the rest of you guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 all of it imagines, and we can do it with an imagination that imagines that in the future, we are there. And that is something that a lot of what we consume doesn't imagine that we are. And so if we do, if we do that, we are working along that space. Um, but also understanding that we've got to innovate as well. In the words of one of my favorite Afrofuturists, uh, Octavia Butler, in order to rise from its own ash ashes, a phoenix first must burn. And so we've got to be able to ignite even within ourselves if we want to be able to imagine what that looks like in the future. And so I appreciate you bringing that kind of lens to us today. Sister Gabrielle, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to you just you, you got me lit up and I'm 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 about to go do some sci fi imagining. Um, and so, yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but it's not fiction, right? It's not fiction. We've been here. We will continue to be here. And we have assets within our community that can help save the world. This has been Counter Stories. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and partner at the Dendros Group. I'm Luz Maria Frias and happily enjoying life to its fullest and whatever comes my way. <laughs> I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians and associate of Dendro's Group. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group, Counterstories producer and VP of Programming at Ampers. And our very special guest today. And I'm Gabrielle Greer, a thinker and doer of all uh, things design and innovation. So happy to be here. This has been Counter Stories. What's on your mind? Let us know and find us online at counterstories.com and on Facebook and Instagram. Counter Stories is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com or wherever you get your podcasts.